Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, ready for part two of the Tammy podcast? Yeah, absolutely. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Tammy Horn Potter from the Kentucky Department of Agriculture. And we're going to finish talking about her book, Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation. Absolutely. For the listeners out there, this is part two. So if you haven't listened to part one, we'd encourage you to pause here, go back and listen to part one, and then come back and rejoin us here at part two. Tammy has some very interesting points in her book. For instance, the fact that beeswax was so important during World War I was a totally new concept to me and uh, definitely a lot of interesting historical tidbits. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Tammy. So Tammy, I'm curious, how important were bees and honey to the effort during World War I? Oh, boy, howdy. <laughs> you know, my, <laughs> I love that time period. I love it so much. It's almost difficult to talk about it because I, I find it compelling because at that point in time, the United States sat on the sidelines of World War I for, in my opinion, an unconscionably long time, although I'm not somebody who is a proponent of war. Uh, but once the United States made a decision to enter, I found that they needed beeswax. It was that simple. They needed beeswax more than they needed honey, although honey was also a, a, a second, it, it was, I don't want to say it was a secondary need, but it was the beeswax that they needed more than anything because the petroleum industry had not yet uh, become a factor. So, so the, you know, the military needed beeswax to waterproof tents and boots and anything that needed waterproofing. And if you know anything about trench warfare, you know that they needed waterproofing. The other thing that they would use beeswax for was to grease down the airplanes to get better gas mileage on the, the uh, airplanes that were being used in World War One, And it was the one of the few times in which the U.S. gave beekeepers an option to stay home and be a beekeeper, that was considered patriotic duty. And uh, because, because the war effort needed so much beeswax. Uh, so they would give beekeepers a deferment uh, from having to serve overseas, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I wish that sometimes our, our military leaders had a more progressive understanding of the need for agriculture to continue, even as we have these military endeavors. Uh, and so that was one of the first ones that it was really, um, it worked, it was successful. And not only that, the military didn't just stop there. They also provided training for returning vets to become beekeepers uh, when they came back from serving in World War I. Now, if you know anything about World War I, you know what made it a particularly hellacious military effort 
was that because of trench warfare, you had many veterans that sustained these intensely ghastly wounds to their face. So a, a consequence is that the cosmetic surgeries uh, that come, you know, out of World War I end up shaping what for many of us we benefit from because dental uh, surgeries really, you know, dentists begin to kind of have a better understanding of how to help people get their, get their um, orthodontic uh, structures back in line due to some of these horrific facial injuries that they're seeing. Uh, but the concern of both the British government and the United States government was if you have so many veterans who feel like they are so unattractive, facially speaking, that they don't want to go out in public, then those people will not pay taxes, right? And so again, we're back here now where, where, we're, where we're worried, right? That there may be some political instability. You know, the, the thinking here, it's ingrained in our political structure that, you know, people should work. They should be tax-paying citizens. And if if you have these men who are so demoralized by their appearances, you know, then they won't want to work. They won't want to pay taxes. And so the government set up a series of uh, courses, you know, obviously beekeeping lends itself to people who can be introverted, to people who may not want to necessarily, it's the ultimate social disting app agriculture interest, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> if you don't want to go out and work, you can be a beekeeper is the thinking. And they hired, um, there's some great photos uh, of this time period. Uh, it's uh, Phillips set up a series of beekeeping courses uh, outside in Maryland. And you have men who have had their legs shot off. Um, who are visibly uh, struggling uh, to learn what the next chapters of their lives are going to be. And, and, and there it's, he felt like it was one of the most successful programs that the, that the U.S. government ever funded uh, because then we get that next generation of beekeepers in the, you know, what comes out of the, the World War I training of those veterans sets up the beekeepers in the, in the Second World War. And, um, and that too is fascinating, but for different reasons. The government's support of beekeepers falls dramatically in World War II. So the two, offer, the two wars offer different portraits of the United States support of beekeepers. I think that's fascinating. I mean, obviously the wax not having the, the other petroleum byproducts that they had developed by the time of World War II, the, the, the bees became progressively, I guess, less important maybe to the overall effort. But that was a mm -hmm. really fascinating piece of your book. I, I had no idea that it was so important, that beekeeping was so important to the war effort that they even allowed people to be deferred from serving in the military or not serve in the military instead to stay home and produce beeswax and, and mm -hmm. also honey, but mainly beeswax, as you pointed out. 
and the, it was the government's concern too about the morale of returning troops that I find interesting. That, you know, what are you going to do with those returning troops who, I mean, shell shock is a term that comes out of World War I. Now we'd say, I think a lot of times we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. But, you know, we're talking about um, industrial warfare on a likes that no one has ever seen before. And the government, the federal government of both England and the United States see beekeeping as a viable form of therapeutic and vocational training. But it's also about helping something heal inside. Now, no one talks about mental uh, illness in any of these documents from this time period. That's not, that's just, you know, I think here in 2021, you know, we have a greater sensitivity to mental illness, depression, these kinds of things that affect somebody that may not be visible and we may not even have words for. But, but already, you know, like I said, in post-World War One, the, the federal government is trying to create a way of helping these veterans uh, carve a new life for themselves after their service to the country. Now that kind of reflects back on what we talked about a little bit earlier, how, you know, they were doing these things to help rehabilitate these returning soldiers, but they really didn't have terminology for it maybe, or they didn't necessarily have the understanding that we have today about the mental health, but they were still doing things that, that were very effective. And Mm -hmm. we want to build on the past, not forget the past, I guess. It makes me wish that we had the same level of interest from the current federal government in helping returning troops chart a new course, chart a new career. It's it can be difficult. So let's switch gears just a little bit here, if you don't mind, Tammy. Let's go back maybe kind of to the beginning almost of when bees arrived here in America. And I'm just a little bit interested. Were there diseases here that affected the bees that the bees were not adapted to? Or did they kind of bring the diseases with them that they had in Europe? Well, the two diseases that plagued bees then and still plague bees now are the ones that uh, they're, they're called American fowl brood and European fowl brood. And in the 17th century, beekeepers didn't realize that they were caused by bacterias. And so documentation of these outbreaks is anecdotal. Um, you know, you don't get a sense from the, from the written records that the beekeeper even knew necessarily the difference between the two. Of the two, American fowl brood is undeniably the more serious of the two. It's the super disease. And it had been present in England prior to hives being brought over to North America, but it had not been named. And so it doesn't get named until it is seen here in in the United States. And so that's why we call American fowl brood, American fowl brood. It was named here in North America, but it had been present, you know, it's a bacterial disease. They've been around for a long time. And 
as I said, it's the super disease. It starts as a bacteria, but it can form a spore. The spore can be dormant for up to 70 years before it's reactivated. So uh, there's a lot of ways that it can be transmitted. Um, you know, for people who aren't beekeepers and they decide all of a sudden that they want to be a beekeeper because they find a hive and, you know, their grandfather's barn, but they have no idea why it died. We always encourage those folks to start with brand new equipment. And it's because this American fowl brood spore can be in the beeswax or, you know, in that equipment. And uh, so we like to make sure that when people start being a beekeeper, that they um, start with the best chance and uh, start with new equipment because you don't know if, especially if you don't know the history of the equipment. And the lesser of the two is European fowl brood, which had also been in Europe, also impacted honeybees, but not to the serious, uh, super serious effects of American fowl brood. Uh, honeybees, if they get on a good nectar flow, can seem, for reasons we still don't understand, they, they can outpace the disease in some cases. Other cases less so, it can be, it can be a persistent problem. We are seeing cases of European fowl brood here in Kentucky that persist well into July this year, which is a bit abnormal. Most of the time, European fowl brood in our state, Kentucky, um, tends to kind of die down by June, you know, first of June. That that's not the case this year. Um, and of the two diseases, European fowl brood stays a bacterial disease. It does not form a spore. So um, in that sense, it is a treatable disease. And we encourage beekeepers, if they are seeing signs of European fowl brood, what they would see is in the open brood, uh, discolored larva. Uh, by discolored, I mean it looks a little bit like coffee, uh, like a latte, if you will. And, um, you know, to call your apiarist and report it. Uh, we, have, we have diagnostic test kits for both of these diseases now. That didn't exist in the 17th century. But now we have diagnostic test kits. They are only $20 a piece, and we encourage beekeepers to have them. And if you choose to use antibiotics to control European fowl brood, uh, you would also want to reach out to your local veterinarian in addition to your local state apiarist. So, and, and if you do identify American fowl brood, um, the current recommendation is not much different than it was way back then, correct? That's correct. That's correct. We, there is still no cure for American fowl brood. And so at this point in time, it, you know, we highly recommend that beekeepers burn that hive and any effective hives that may be showing symptoms too, uh, because it's, Again, it, it can form a spore. And that's about the only way at this point in time that we know how to, you know, assure a beekeeper that they can move on. I, I will say, unfortunately, um, that there is a right way and a wrong way to burn a beehive. 
And so you want to make sure that if you have to do this, A, that the hive does definitely have American fowl brood. And I say that because at different times, especially in the fall, beehives will bring in a nectar from New England aster and goldenrod. And it has a different floral odor than almost any other floor flowers in the landscape. It's a, it, in my opinion, it is a yeasty brewery kind of smell. And so many beekeepers mistake that odor because it'll be sudden. It's almost as soon as that goldenrod blooms. You, the, you know, the bees are bringing in that nectar and all of a sudden the hive has a totally different smell. And so many beekeepers are alarmed, new beekeepers especially, because they think, uh-oh, you know, my hive either has this European fowl brood or this American fowl brood. And there is a difference. European fowl brood, now again, I'm not speaking in technical scientific lang language here. To me, it smells like sauerkraut or kimchi, like the most vile form of kimchi you've ever had to try to eat, right? And American fowl brood to me smells like decay, right? There is a, there is a, on these, on the, the whole uh, spectrum of olfactory smells, <laughs> American fowl brood smells, smells like a rodent died in the hive, a rodent, all right? And um, so, uh, you know, but, you know, my husband, you know, he's smoked for years. And so, he can get skunked and not smell it. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, these, these subtleties of kimchi and uh, dead rodent are lost on my husband. Um, but those can be some of your first warning signs. And so I, I like to tell beginner beekeepers, especially, you know, don't panic, you know, especially if it's in the fall, especially, you know, notice what's blooming outside the hive. You should be doing this anyway. Um, and if you're and if you're seeing that there's a lot of goldenrod and New and New England asters blooming, um, that those volatile odors will go away. They they will dissipate in a, you know in a week or two, and it won't stay lingering like that. Uh, but you should still go ahead and do an inspection. Wear disposable gloves just in case just in case the hive does have a disease. Um, you know, you should still make sure that you do an inspection. But yeah, sometimes, um, you know, different, different flowers have volatiles that can make a hive smell, smell, smell differently. And it can, and it can sometimes alarm beginner beekeepers. The, the burning of the hives, the destruction of a hive is obviously a major step that nobody wants to take. So it's mm -hmm. pretty important to confirm that that's actually what the problem is before you take that step. And that is where um, a diagnostic kit is a very good investment for 20 bucks. And I, I tell, I mean, beekeeper, especially a lot of, a lot of beginner beekeepers to me are notorious for spending tons of money on all of these decorative bee related things. And they need to be buying a diagnostic kit. Like that will be the one thing off of their shopping list that they will not buy. But that to me is critical. It's right up there with a smoker and a hive tool and a veil. You, 
you need to be able to know if your hive is sick or not. Yeah, that's great advice. So as we talk about diseases, um, there's a, a elephant uh, in the room, sort of, so to speak. <laughs> Almost the size of an elephant, even. Um, and that, that's varroa mites. Uh, do you want to talk about them a little bit? Oh, boy, howdy. That's a good one. So uh, varroa mites, for those who are not beekeepers, um, I, I like to use my colleague, Dr. Tom Webster. He says uh, it's a hypodermic needle just transferring viruses. And so it's, it's a parasite that was brought into the United States in the late 1980s um, from Asia, where it has coexisted with Asian honeybees, you know, for a long, long, long time. And so the Asian honeybees have their own set of rules for dealing with the varroa mite. But in the United States, the vast majority of honeybees are European. And the European honeybees did not coexist with varroa mites. So when the varroa mites were finally, did make their appearance in the United States, the, the European honeybees had no defenses. And here we are, 2021, and we are still, uh, beekeepers are still trying to figure out workarounds uh, with this particular, um, you know, this particular mite. There are other mites, I want to be clear about that. But the varroa mite right now is beekeeper enemy number one. And the reason why it is so destructive is because it impacts a honeybee at every stage of its life, you know? So it impacts it in the pupae stage underneath the wax capping. It impacts it at the adult stage, you know, when it is feeding on the fat body of its abdomen. Uh, so it is always doing damage all the time to the, to the life of a honeybee. And of course, then by extension, uh, it's, it's colony or it's hive. So it's not just that it is doing damage to a bee all the time, it's also vectoring viruses. And when I started as the state apiarist in 2014, there were 14 fairly commonly known viruses impacting honeybees. Now there are 27 uh, identified viruses. Wow. And the viruses have been around a long time, right? But the, what's new is the vector, right? What's new is how those viruses are transmitted to honeybees. And that's, you know, so for the past, you know, 30, 30 years, you know, some of the best minds are working on how to, um, negate this, uh, this particular threat to beehives. And there's been some amazing efforts in terms of queen production, you know, getting more hygienic uh, queen bee uh, lines out there. Um, there's been efforts at 
you know, the chemical controls, uh, you know, trying to get a more benign uh, substance, but at the same time that won't increase the Varroa mite's ability to become resistant to those controls. Um, there have been efforts in say like Italy where they do, uh, they will uh, cage a queen and just kind of break the reproductive cycle of Varroa mites, but at the same time, keep the queen inside the colony so her pheromone keeps the hive working uh, without break. Um, you know, the, the Russian honeybees, uh, the, uh, Dr. Tom Seeley and the Lives of Bees um, documents the fact that the, this host pathogen transfer from varroa mite to European honeybee occurred in the far eastern corner of Russia in the Pramsky Prey region. Um, the, I would appreciate if the, your Russian uh, fans would give me some latitude if I've mispronounced <laughs> that. Sounded good to me. <laughs> um, but but and, and as far as he can tell, this is Dr. Seeley. Uh, who I think may have retired from Cornell this year, that, that transfer pathogen, uh, that, that, the host pathogen transfer may have just happened once in this one tiny little corner of the, the region in Russia, which sits right on top of Asia. Uh, but we're still dealing with it. And, but the Russian honeybees have some tolerance for Varroa mites. Um, and so beekeeper, especially USDA lab at Baton Rouge, has done an excellent job of, you know, getting Russian honeybees established uh, in different places. So to me, you know, if you're a beekeeper now, uh, you're also, you don't have a choice. You have to acknowledge uh, that, that the mite is the fourth individual in the hive and to figure out a strategy for dealing with that. Yeah, the best way I think for the farmer listeners that we have to understand the importance of varroa mites, um, you know, that maybe if they're not familiar with beekeeping as I, I would compare them probably to corn rootworm, which is mm -hmm. a, a massive problem across the United States where, you know, rootworm it's estimated that we spend a billion dollars trying to, you know, between trying to control it and the losses from it, it's a very similar, similar situation in beekeeping where a lot of money is spent in trying to control this pest, which is very hard to control because we're trying to kill a, a relatively large, you know, bug in, for not, not entomology term, Preston, don't, you know, not using an entomological <laughs> sense, you know, forgive me, but a, a small, you know, a fairly large bug on a, on a bigger bug, um, mm -hmm. it, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and the, the mite's ability to develop resistance outpaces, outpaces science. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's chemical warfare, as you know, and, and it's constantly in biological warfare. I mean, it's, it's you're, you're, you know, beekeepers are kind of constantly staying one step ahead. And that's why I think um, it's, compelling to see how uh, commercial beekeepers 
are looking at indoor overwintering and adopting that as a, a best management strategy, um, you know, this kind of, uh, it, it's Canadian beekeepers have used it for a number of years. And uh, the United States now seems to be uh, following in the Canadian footsteps lead on this. And it does seem to be working because if a, a commercial beekeeper can uh, store his hives or her hives in a, um, a building where the conditions are controlled, you know, the temperature is controlled, the light is controlled, um, you can force a break in the mite, the varroa mite reproduction cycle and, um, and also apply a treatment that will get all of the mites that are riding on the adult bees. Um, you can get a fairly good uh, efficacy um, and, and that then helps your bees get ready to take advantage of the nectar flow. Tammy, we've talked a lot about the past. I'm curious, about your perspective on the future of beekeeping. What are some of the most exciting and promising aspects about the future of beekeeping in your book? I, uh, for me, it's seeing these uh, widespread efforts to get more pollinator habitat in the United States. Uh, there is a stat that I attribute to Dr. Jim too although he swears he doesn't remember saying this. <laughs> so maybe it should be properly attributed to some other scholar, but I don't know who that person is. Um, but I, in one of his talks, I seem to remember him saying that it takes 252 million flowers for each hive to make it through a full calendar year. And you have to know that those flowers aren't compromised by drought or by, um, you know, uh, you know, chemical products, you know, there's a, you know, mowing schedules. I mean, there's a million things that have to, to go right there. And, um, and so to, to me, what I find uh, exciting is to see that, you know, we have the Farm Services Agency in charge of conservation, um, the, the CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, which has a pollinator habitat component to it. We have the NRCS that has uh, a pollinator habitat component in its federal program. And at and, least and right now, now mind you, this could change because uh, the legislative process is always a, a quirky animal. But, uh, you know, for, for farmers, you know, it's a 50-50 cash match. Uh, you know, you put up half of the funds, say, for flower seeds, and the federal government will match the other half of that flower seed invoice. And some of these invoices can be quite expensive, you know, say $13,000. And so you, as the beekeeper, put up, you know, $7,500, and the, and the federal government matches that. That, to me, this, this effort here by the federal government to help get more pollinator habitat in the ground is some of the best spent federal funds in the United States that we've had, and such as I haven't seen the likes of since the 1930s New Deal program. I mean, that to me is the scale of the importance of these federal 
uh, policies to get pollinator habitat established. And so I'm excited about that. I'm ex I, I serve on many nonprofit boards. So Project APSM is one of those boards and we work with the Bee and Butterfly Habitat Fund. They tend to do a lot of work in the heartland part of the state uh, states to get more pollinator habitat working with individual farmers to get the appropriate uh, drill, the drills so that the flower seed um, is planted correctly, doesn't get planted too deeply, for instance, or too lightly so that it just blows away. I'm excited by these efforts to get more habitat and better care of the landscapes to support that habitat, because it's not just about providing habitat for honeybees, it's about providing good habitat for other pollinators as well. And that's, that's my goal to the extent that I have one that I, I kind of keep in front of me, it's about that. And it's, you know, anywhere from small gardens, you know, the Monarch Way stations to several thousand acres is it's trying to get more pollinator habitat established in our country. Yeah, that's a great effort and a great valuable, as you mentioned, a valuable thing that's going on. So Tammy, today we've talked a lot about the past of beekeeping. We've talked a little bit about the present and you've now talked about the future. Basically, most of this conversation is things that you talk about in your book, uh, Bees in America, which I highly recommend, as, a, as I mentioned before, to our listeners. But you've also written some books about the present and future of beekeeping also. You, this isn't your only book. That's correct. My second book followed closely on the heels of Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation. The second book is all about women beekeepers. It's called Beekonomy, what women and bees teach us about local trade and global markets. And that particular book is arranged geographically. Um, I visited five continents, interviewing women beekeepers in each of those continents, and also uh, wanting to provide pictures of different types of hives other than the Langstroth movable frame hive. I wanted people to see the variety of hives and the, the way that different land geologies can help provide different forms of hives. So for instance, there are, are clay hives in Egypt, for instance, or, um, you know, I'm just thinking of uh, the, the Russian industrial honey hives uh, in Armenia. There's a, a, I find that for many people, they think that there's just one type of hive, the, the movable frame hive, when in fact, there's a whole range of different hives. And of course, I think many people, if they think of, an, of a new type of hive, they think of um, the, you know, the new hive that's coming out, out of Australia, um, the honey flow hive. <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> hey, more power to them. That's right. right? More power to them. Good for them. You know, 
we need to be thinking that way. That's we right. Need, we should we never need... be afraid to innovate. <laughs> exactly. That's right. I mean, like that, that's how I see it. But my second book is all about women beekeepers. And as I said, it's, it's based on uh, my travels around the world. I did not get to Asia, unfortunately. I did not get to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, are there bees in Antarctica? No, not, okay. not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Climate change could change this, but but not yet. <laughs> so, um, you know, maybe your folks will give me a pass on that one. But uh, then the, the next book I wrote is called Flower Power. And that's about my, it started as my work with coal companies in eastern Kentucky establishing pollinator habitat on surface mine sites. But, uh, you know, coal is mined throughout the world. And so I pull in uh, the work I did in Australia, however brief that was, and, um, and just some basics that I think folks who are wanting to establish pollinator habitat can learn from my mistakes is what that book is. It's called Flower Power establishing pollinator habitat because I did make some mistakes and I and I hope that if if I share them with folks that maybe others won't have to make them you know they can avoid that and then the the book that just came out this year is a another equally eccentrically written <laughs> manuscript <laughs> of these uh, there are there's Amos Ives Root, we just discussed him and the fact that the Root family still publishes Bee Culture magazine. And he was a prolific writer. And he wrote a memoir about his experiences of owning a factory. And uh, this man, um, again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of following in his footsteps, uh, made mistakes that he felt by being very open about his mistakes, maybe others could learn from them. And, um, and so uh, I take his memoir about some of the, the experiences in the factory, everything from fires to not having enough money for payroll on Friday night. And how do you face your employees when you don't have payroll that night, you know, in the 19th century? How do you deal with employees who are wanting to form a union, right? Um, these are all issues that are still present with us today, right? I mean, Amazon just had a big union vote. And then his employee, his right-hand woman was a, a named Jane Cole, and she was with him from the beginning. And she spent 40 years working for the Root Factory. And unbeknownst to Mr. A.I. Root, she wrote a memoir. She ended up becoming the bookbinder for the Bee Culture magazines back when we should say bookbinding was a perilous occupation. People lost fingers because of the alls that were needed to, you know, put the, put the binding together. And very, very sharp, astute woman who divorced in the 1870s, back when women were not supposed to divorce, and she never remarried. Um, and she wrote her memoirs of 40 years of factory life. And so I combined these two books written by two people whose, des whose destiny, they needed each other. 
and um, took their observations on the same occurrences that happened at this one factory and blended their, their writings together. So it's probably, I shouldn't say that I wrote the book. It's called Work I Knew I Must, colon, 40, 41 Years of Factory Life. And that is only available, I think, at bculture.com. I don't think that it's available on Amazon. But you would be surprised at how current everything in that book is. Everything from wages to worker shortages to union discussions to perilous working conditions. I mean, as you can imagine, if you were working in a factory in the 19th century, if you got hurt on the job, it was serious, life-threatening in some cases. And fires, you know, the, the factory suffered two fires. So I think the surprise with that book was that that has taken me the longest to get published. From the moment that somebody first placed Jane Cole's autobiography in my hands, that was 2005. Um, we didn't get this book published until 2021, but it hasn't aged one bit. All of the concerns in both Jane Cole and Amos Ive Root's writings are still current. And much of that, I did not realize, um, I had met Mr. Root's descendants. In fact, the Root family is still run by a Root descendant, but I did not know Jane Cole's family. And so in 2019, I finally had a chance to meet her nephew's family. When you're writing a book, so much of this is solitary and so much of this is inside your own head. And so when you actually have a chance to meet a family member who has pictures of the aunt that you're writing about and has fond memories of this person, however many ancestors exist, it really brings that to life in nice ways. That is interesting. It's, it's probably interesting from a sociological perspective also, mm -hmm. the two different perspectives on the same occurrences. I think there's just a lot of interesting angles that probably come out in your book. Oh, the whole issue of, of women's discrimination. I, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast, but she deals with it. I mean, it is not lost on her by any stretch of imagination that when the factory is facing slow times, it's the women who are let go. And so she, I think, very resourcefully develops this, another set of skills. And it's Amos Ives Root who has to go to her next place of employment and beg her to come back. <laughs> and that orders start coming in at the factory. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, Tammy, uh, we really appreciate your time here today. Uh, on our podcast. Is there a way our listeners can follow you, uh, social media? Uh, obviously, we're going to link to your book in the show notes, but anywhere our listeners can find more of you. I am on Facebook, but I have yet to really explore Instagram the way that I should. I know I need to get up to speed on these other platforms, <laughs> um, but right now, Facebook is about all I can handle. And um, I don't even have a website anymore. I used to have one, 
but that became much more than what I wanted to try to uh, handle. So right now, Facebook is, is it, it, it's the quickest way. That and obviously people can um, email me at uh, just tammy.potter at ky.gov. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Tammy. This has been a great conversation. Once again, I will encourage the listeners to go out and check out your books. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it too. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.